1: Totally Football Show. Today, schools reopening special. Spurs enjoy their new class, but Liverpool still getting schooled at home and City suddenly out of form too. We take a comprehensive look at the weekend's action, top to bottom, look ahead to Leipzig and discuss footballing terms in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hi, listener. Monday the 8th of March. Thank you for joining us on board totally today. We've got uh, Michael Cox of Zonalmarking.net. Hello, Michael. Hi, James. Uh, the Sunday night Solomon Daniel Storey is here with us. <laughs> evening, James. Good evening to you. And um, the Marshall McLuhan, can I say, of football broadcasting, Adam Harry. Hello. A.K.A. Football Clichés. <laughs> thank-, thank you for joining us, Adam.
2: Thank you very much.
1: You're here to police our use of the kind of the lexicon.
2: Yes, that's me my, my role, I think.
1: Right, good. And it's, it's an evolving role, of course, because of the times that we live in. Now you've got a whole subcategory about nothing without the fans, we want them back as soon as possible, etc.
2: Well, yeah, i huge fatigue when it comes to that. I, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe we should just ignore it now. Right. Assume that everybody now knows about the times we live in.
1: What about the description of the taking the knee? Because that's become a little bit of a a
2: sub-genre as well. Well, I I feel quite uncomfortable even passing comments on it because, you know, it's it's something they have to say at the start of every game, but they've run out of ways of saying it. And and not only that, they've run out of ways of apologising for swearing um, to the point where Bill Leslie... On Sky the other night, just um, simply said, oh, I suppose it's now time for us to apologise for swearing. And uh, <laughs> he sounded like he was really, really sick of the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, we've hit a real kind of impasse with all sorts of things, I think.
1: Among the many positives of there being no fans in stadiums. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you can the fact that you can hear the, the naughty bits is obviously huge but uh, I've I wonder if anyone else could back me up on this but I I've really been enjoying Match the Day of late I know that everyone loved the screaming bit at the end of Saturday's one but just in general I'm not sure if they've got a new producer in or is is it cuz it's a shorter duration or something but they, they just seem to be much more relaxed and having Fun, Gary, in the It's quite
3: you- a last day of school atmosphere, mm. doesn't it? Sort of de-mob happy atmosphere in the studio. Yeah, I don't know why that is. It must be. It must be deliberate because it hasn't noticeably shifted. Maybe it's because the football is not as entertaining as maybe it was, and it's quite relentless that they feel like they need to bring a bit of jeunesse choir into it.
4: Mm. I, th- I think as well. Sometimes it's probably quite exhausting for them if they have to be across like eight games in a day, um, and so maybe that there's only four. A bit more relaxed. So, having said that, prepare for our analysis of eight games over the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh,
1: although you've already requested that we don't talk about two of them. So, uh, we'll see. <laughs> By the way, on the subject of getting the fans back in, The Athletic among uh, the many top football sites reporting that the Premier League is looking at shifting around 36 and round 37 of the season back so that they'll occur after the restrictions on fans attending uh, events have lifted so that they could get up to 10,000 supporters in for games. Uh, This has not been ratified by the Premier League. There's no official confirmation, but the idea is out there the season would still end on the 23rd of May. And, uh, well, we'll keep across that one. All right, let's talk some football. What happened this weekend? Man City's 21-game winning run came to a sudden end against Neighbours Man United. Bruno Fernandes converting a penalty given just 34 seconds in. Luke Shaw adding United second. United thus stay second in the table, 11 points behind City. They're a point ahead of Leicester, whose 2-1 win at Brighton, coupled with Fulham's win at Liverpool. means the Seagulls are now just goal difference ahead of the Cottagers in the relegation scrap. Elsewhere, Sunday was the worst night for Palace all year, at least until Monday, as Spurs ran out 4-1 winners over uh, Roy Hodgson's side. Arsenal, who Spurs face next week, where Pete Gunner's in their 1-1 draw at Burnley. We'll talk about that shortly. Saints ended their losing streak with a 2-0 win at Sheffield United and Villa and Wolves, and West Brom and Newcastle shared goalless draws. The latter, a fixture straight from one of Dante's circle, a spectacle that was, in many ways,
5: Nietzsche's abyss staring into you. Where do you want to start? Manchester Derby. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Derby and Shaw scores! Goodness me, it's Luke Shaw for Manchester United. Well, they started the first half in electrifying fashion, and this isn't far behind. Manchester
1: Derby, two 0 Man United. Uh, why does Solskjaer always win this game?
4: Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, I think since he took over at Manchester United, his his tactics in big games have usually been pretty good. Um, and I don't think the results so far this season have necessarily shown that but I thought not only was his game plan spot on but I thought his analysis after the game where he said actually it was a pretty similar game to last weekend against Chelsea the only difference was a penalty decision I thought that actually worked quite well I mean I do think this Manchester United side is geared towards playing on the break as, as we all know especially when Daniel James is in the side to go with Rashford and Martial who I think probably had his best game of the season and I think on this particular occasion, Solskjaer used quite a clever strategy, I thought, where Fred and McTominay were very wide, very far apart from each other, which is pretty unconventional. Uh, protecting the space in the channels, which City usually work really well with De Bruyne and, and Gundogan. Um, and then the the three in front, Rashford and Fernandes and James, just blocked the centre really well. So I think in, in terms of specifics, I think that's what they did in this game. In terms of why it's always this game, I, I don't quite know, but I do think that there's a, there's something about Solskjaer's coaching that does make him suited to playing as the underdog, really. And it's the games like Crystal Palace and Midweek where I still think they are, despite the results in, in that sense, improving this season, I still find them quite unconvincing against those weaker sides. Mm. Daniel,
1: you certainly saw this one coming.
3: Yeah, it, it, in terms of, firstly, as, as Michael says, about kind of what Solskjaer's good at, and also in this kind of driven narrative terms, that he seems to, uh, just when you, you're losing faith, i.e. Palace in midweek, he kind of reels you back in and maybe even reels some Manchester United supporters. I don't know if fans now do fluctuate between camps or if that tribalism's so entrenched that they've picked their opinion and they're sticking to it. But I wouldn't know what to think of as a Manchester United fan because it is a good result, but it's a result that comes three weeks after Solskjaer gave up the title and you know, three months after they were top of the league. So it's really hard to know where to fall on that. But yeah, I mean, personally, I would still be deeply annoyed if I was a United fan that that this ultimately probably doesn't mean that much. Um, because, you know, if they had beaten Palace and Sheffield United and West Brom, there'd be a point off top now and everyone would be saying, well, they can win the league. And I don't think they can, which is... Is a shame for the title race and also a shame for Solskjaer because you don't know when another, you know, you don't know if other sides will be as bad next year. Chelsea might improve again. Liverpool might come back. It's not as easy as saying we'll improve again next year and we'll get closer. This felt it's- like a really good opportunity.
1: Right. I mean, it's entirely valid what you say about them not doing this in, in those other games. But they are essentially the, the closest competitor to a, a City team that has been, at least until this weekend, on an extraordinary run of form. They hadn't famously been behind for a single minute in any of their previous 19 Premier League matches. That all, of course, changed a couple of minutes into this one with the penalty that was awarded against City for Gabriel Jesus' uh, agricultural challenge. Keshev Rampol among the many people writing in on the subject of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer asking, will he still be there in 26 years' time with two FA Cups and a community shield? It's a chilling <laughs> prospect, isn't it? What did you make of City's reaction? Or was, was there a City reaction?
3: To me, that I mean, they created chance in the last 20 minutes. I thought they, they improved probably because Foden came on with kind of quick feet and also because United naturally sat deep. But the big issue with City has always been when they concede first, they they don't win. They've they've conceded first in 16 games since the start of last season in the Premier League and they've only won three of them, which is far fewer than lots of other sides around them. And it will annoy Guardiola because that's the type of performance out of nowhere that City have produced in the Champions League and that's probably their big, you know, that's their big mountain to climb this season is the Champions League.
2: I'd also say that the, um, I thought the two goals that they conceded were probably goals I might well have scripted beforehand. First of all, the penalty, um, given how much thought that Guardiola must put into his game plan to even allow the possibility that after thirty-four seconds a striker would be making a challenge like that on the edge of the penalty area, it, it makes me—it it really does confuse me that these sort of things are allowed to happen. You know that they a striker would be instructed just to not be anywhere near that situation, go away. Um, so it, was, it was the absolute textbook. Um, example of a striker's challenge. It was such a weird thing for anybody to be doing, let alone in the in the nascent stages of a very, very big game.
6: Absolutely. And then
2: the second goal was, um, um, I mean, it was barely a counter because it came from Henderson throwing the ball out really, really nicely. Um, you don't see a throw like that. it's a really pinpoint throw, in, not in a huge rush to do it. And then Shaw kind of just barrelling forward, um, which is the apt phrase because that's exactly what he looks like. And then... Kind of finishing in it in a way that I've never seen a fullback score like that in my life. It was a really, really nice finish, like really kind of premeditated. I'm putting it here, and you're not going to save it. Um, kind of sort of slightly messy, like which was, feels again feels very strange to say. Um, so two goals are in in the grand scheme of things, I would actually expect City to have conceded. Right.
1: Oh, that's good. Uh, Luke Shaw, by the way, while we're throwing uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer some love. Is he a player who Solskjaer has improved, or at least has improved under Solskjaer, which has been one of the charges maybe brought against Holly in the past? Does he make players better the way that
4: Pep does? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent Solskjaer's responsible for his improvement, but yes, I think he's um, he's had a very good season. I think, aside from Fernandez, who I think has probably been the best player in the league, Shaw's probably been Manchester United's next best player this this year. And the other one who I think obviously has improved, albeit it's not having great season is, is Martial. I thought he was actually very good last season. So yeah, there are, there were a couple of positives. I mean it was a I think overall you have to come away from that game and say it wasn't great quality. I mean I thought the first half hour in particular was really scrappy. I thought De Bruyne was as bad as I've seen him for a long time, just his touch seemed to completely desert him. And I was surprised to see him completely out sprinted by Shaw for the uh, <laughs> second goal as as Adam described so well. So it was a, a strange performance but I mean to to go back to a question I asked earlier. Jim, I thought City actually came back into it quite well, and Guardiola changed his approach because the whole way they're playing at the moment is obviously very narrow. Cancelo's coming inside; Zinchenko pretty much does the same thing in a in a less dramatic way. But he made the two substitutes he made were Walker coming on for Cancelo to play as a proper overlapping fullback, and he, he put in a couple of really good crosses. And the other was Foden um, on the left, which meant that you know they had width on that side. Someone going down the outside, and and by the end, I thought actually. City probably created enough chances that, I mean, if one of them had gone in, it was one of those games where you feel like Manchester United might have panicked a bit. So, I I mean, people seem to, the instant reaction I saw, people were being incredibly harsh on City. But, I mean, they've won, what, 20 games on the trot or whatever and and launched, I thought, a pretty good comeback here. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too harsh on them.
1: Is this a result that do you think would mean something long-term or will it be, looking back, an anomaly in the same way that, United's last win away at the Etihad was, and then they went on to kind of lose to whoever they lost to.
3: I guess Solskjaer will sell it as a as a result for next season. Um, you know, in in so much as he he has already given up the league, so that was an acceptance, deliberate or otherwise, that this game didn't really matter to Manchester United's season, other than maybe building forward for next season. But you know, to to kind of end where we started. These have never been the problem games for Solskjaer. This isn't where he's going to prove that, unfortunately. It's brilliant beating the best teams. And, and normally these are the places where managers kind of earn their spurs. But um, that do, it feels like the opposite with Solskjaer. It isn't going to be these games that he proves himself. Because that's why he got the job on a permanent basis anyway. Largely due to big game performance.
4: I mean, I think the significance might be in terms of the future fixtures between these two sides. Because I think now we can say it's, it's not a freak run that Solskjaer is getting the better of Guardiola it does seem to be something tactically he's doing very well and for all the talk about Guardiola quote overthinking in big games actually he didn't here I mean he used his default system that he's been playing for the last two months you wonder whether next time he he comes across Manchester United he'll make sure that there's a surprise in store for Solskjaer because like I say I think Solskjaer planned for this game and and the tactics worked really well in the first half so yeah maybe there is some long-term significance in, in this particular game.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, it was a good day for United on Sunday. Earlier in the afternoon, at Liverpool continuing their collapse, this time with a defeat to Fulham at Anfield. That's a sixth consecutive loss at home. Duncan Alexander helpfully listing teams that have scored as many or more league goals than Liverpool in their own stadium in 2021 at Anfield. Man City, Everton, Chelsea, Fulham, Brighton and Burnley. Woo! A Benji Laniado, quick to write in and say, Liverpool will be the story, but this Fulham side are great. Says Benji, Parker has built a team with a bit of everything. Robustness, Tozan and Anderson. Flair, Lookman. Graft, Reed. he's fantastic. Strength, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Pace, Ana and Cavallero, so much more worthy of the Premier League than, say, Newcastle, says Benji, earning himself a lot of fans in the North East. Right. What What did you make of, of, of Fulham, Adam?
2: Uh, my first thought when I saw their team, as many people pointed out, was it's actually quite an attacking lineup. And And my first thought when I saw that team was that they're going to ask Parker in his pre-match interview, they're going to ask him, is this a good time to be playing Liverpool? And he'll play it down. But then I, and having seen that team, I thought, do you know what, secretly and perhaps not so secretly, he thought, yeah, it is a bloody good time to be playing Liverpool and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chuck everything at them. And it's, it was quite nice to see a, to a manager fairly obviously doing that. Um, and uh, it was... It was a nice little cross section of a club in crisis this game. So, Fulham did arrive uh, perhaps just the right time. But, um, I mean, there was a dreaded plane banner going over Anfield, which is quite literally never a good sign. Liverpool's back four was sort of actually quite sad to look at. Um, <laughs> Nat, Nat Phillips and Rhys Williams is the most unexpected centre half partnership for a big club since Jose Mourinho took Michael Essien and Paolo Ferreira to Anfield to play against Rafa Benitez's Liverpool in 2007. And the only thing that went against Fulham today was Scott Parker's touchline outfit, which I thought was abysmal. Right. Absolutely well, abysmal.
1: How would you characterise it? World's least subtle shoplifter or shy man on a way, on his way to a game of strip poker? I, I'd I, go with the latter myself.
3: It looked to me like a kind of post-rapid diet Michelin man. Okay. Kind of look yeah
1: well he, he, you know the temperatures were what they were <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: um and uh, you know his his on-field outfit is doing a great job so yes. yeah we salute you cottages only man city i heard in commentary have allowed fewer goals since the start of december that's extraordinary
4: i mean they are on the basis of the past uh, two or three months they look a really good side for them i mean there's been quite a few games where they've only drawn and, and they have had well the collected too many draws, but there's a few games where they really could have won them. And and I, I agree, I think what Benji says is is spot on. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a couple of quite obvious characteristics about the side that work really well here, particularly playing combinations on the counter to get Lukman in down the left. And it just felt so often that ball throughout the first half was on for them. I mean there are funny though. we talk about Manchester United being, you know, better in the big games Uh, I mean, Fulham have won five games this season and three of them have been away at the top seven in the league. They've won away at Leicester, won away at Everton. Now they've won away at Liverpool. So, I mean, they are quite a strange side as well. But, yeah, on on the basis of their form and their current level of performance, they are on course to stay up, which I don't think any of us would have vaguely imagined in October when they just looked completely out of their depth. Right. In December, Matt Davis Adams
1: points out he tipped Fulham to stay up. (laughs) Uh, Matt Davis-Adams, of course, famously tipping Bournemouth to do the opposite last season. He says that he said Fulham would stay up, and that was back in December. Uh, They would be out of the bottom three right now had they not been controversially denied an equaliser in a game that took place after our last show Thursday night against Spurs uh, over that um, handball by Mario Lamina in the the build-up to what would have been Josh Marger's goal. Uh, Lamina, by the way, Adam, uh, the way he got the better of Mo Salah for Fulham's goal... I've heard it described in many different ways, some less broadcastable than others. What, how, how would you describe it?
2: Well, f- from a kind of scoreline perspective, um, some may regard it as an opener, which is uh, just before half time is, is a very grey area. I mean, how late can you go with opener? I've seen it in the 88th minute people describing goals as openers. Um, it's just just a scratching the surface of the current vandalism of the language of football that is currently happening. Um, right, what about the
1: actual act of just muscling him out the way, of beasting him?
2: Um, not a huge fan of, of the verb to beast. No. I have to say. So
1: Salah's just a bit casual when he receives the ball, and Lamina just comes past him i think kind of half jujitsu him out the way and says i'll be having that i mean he certainly puts an arm across to kind of lever him out i the had way. a
3: horrible feeling for a while that var was going to look at it and lamina was going to shed actual tears on the pitch after after thursday night yeah
6: mm,
1: indeed anyway uh they kept the goal they earned themselves a win they are now level with brighton uh, brighton just outside the bottom three with their goal difference Somehow. I don't know how Brighton have a better goal. Anyway, Newcastle are one point better off after their 0-0 at West Brom. And Burnley are four points ahead. But basically, you've got four teams there within four points. So could be pretty tasty that relegation scrap. Brighton and Newcastle do have a game in hand. Meanwhile, Liverpool, though, without a goal from open play at home in... I think it's 708 minutes now. Uh, well, anyway, since December the 27th. Mark Ogden uh, tweeting, I'm running out of words to describe this. It's gone from a blip to a slump to a malaise to a meltdown. Now what? Adam, you're perfectly
2: placed to help, Mark, with his quandary. He's got the hierarchy just about right there, I'd say. Uh, we're definitely into cracked badge territory. But what I would say is this this isn't your usual crisis. There's, there's, there isn't an evidently poisonous dressing room. There's no manager at loggerheads with the boardroom and no so tableaus of despair on the pitch either. This is, but we are definitely into crack badge territory. That, that is the most crucial thing. Um, but what the most worrying thing perhaps of the whole day, for, for Liverpool's perspective, was that after the game, Jurgen Klopp was asked what his priority was. And he says, my priority is just to win football games. And that is what managers in crisis say. That's exactly the phrase that crisis managers use. When they start saying football games in full, you know things are bad.
3: But yeah, the the, the the odd thing to me with Liverpool is just how broken everything looks. Without, they're obviously fighting, but normally when a team is in crisis, there's a kind of desperation to everything they do. You didn't even really get that today. It looked like almost like they were just kind of going through the motions to try and score, and. Um, yeah, when they were really good, it felt like kind of fate was on their side and they wrestled the narrative back in the last five minutes of games and scored crucial goals at crucial times. And now it, it all just feels a bit flat, which is is worse, I think, than the anger. You know, if there was a real anger to it, then at least it would be, as Adam says, diagnosable. But it's kind of hard to, other than the injuries, but even with the injuries, you still think there'd be a bit more fight to it. And it's just not.
1: Well, the next football game that their manager will be focused on winning for Liverpool is, of course, RB Leipzig in the Champions League. And look, we're joined now by Raphael Honigstein. Hello, Rafa.
6: Hello, James.
1: Hello there. Uh, crikey, RB Leipzig. I imagine they're looking at this tie, RB, with renewed optimism. It looked a bit over, but maybe not.
6: Yes, I think You might be right, although they had quite a bit of optimism going into the first leg, and a lot of people in Germany were saying, well, Liverpool are obviously not playing well and Leipzig are flying. This is going to be not easy, but a lot of people made Leipzig favourites. So I think they're a bit more cautious now. But, of course, they had a great win on the weekend, 3-0 against Freiburg, in Freiburg, which is a proverbial tough place to go in Bundesliga standards. And uh, I don't have to tell you, what Liverpool did in the meantime. So yes, I think maybe a sense that it's not quite over yet. Although the bad news, of course, is that Liverpool could afford to lose this game. Um, this being the the home leg, a uh, one nil would still be fine. One nil defeat. So, but yeah, should be should be really interesting.
1: Okay, Leipzig in a terrific run of form in the last nine games. The only one they haven't won was the 2-0 home in inverted commas game against Liverpool in the Champions League since that defeat they've had four wins scoring 11 only conceding two and as I recall back in the group stage as well they they really messed up the first time against well at least in terms of the result against Man United at Old Trafford but then in the second meeting had the better of them so possibly there's a there's a sense that Nagelsmann acquires the knowledge to then beat his opponents.
6: Yeah, I mean, they don't tend to have too many bad games in a row. So I think there is there's an opportunity f- for them. Where I'm slightly less optimistic is when it comes to creating chances at this level. Um, they, they seem to be working a lot harder than, than maybe some of the other clubs who have big... Very reliable centre forwards or forward players. Um, Leipzig rely a lot on their midfielders. Sometimes they don't even have a striker on the pitch, and I think it's a tactic that I wouldn't say has worked against them because Nagelsmann made the most out of it. But it also, I think, shows you that in maybe those slightly edgier games, when they're up against teams with just a bit more up front, they tend to, they tend to struggle. But yeah. It's definitely a very good opportunity. I mean, you wouldn't think that Liverpool would possibly be having such a bad spell. And I totally agree with you that this is probably one of the better times playing against them. And I think as much as Nagasman will try not to sort of agree with this publicly, I'm sure that deep down he will be plotting ways of exploiting that.
1: Right. right. OK. And presumably a big push for uh, an early goal will be key to that. for for Leipzig will it Uh, from the first game between the two sides was was there any elements that may make you think that it is a reversible thing for for RB Rasenball
6: (laughs) Rasenball Sport, Ah. yeah I think I think so I think what was quite noticeable at least from my perspective was that I think a lot of people who perhaps hadn't seen that much of uh, RB came away thinking well what's the fuss about you know they, they look quite ordinary and, uh, you know, what, what is the big deal here? But I think that was really a reflection on Liverpool playing very well in the, on the night and, and restricting Leipzig to almost no chances. Liverpool didn't have that many chances either, so it was quite edgy. So, you know, if, if Liverpool perhaps are not quite as good as they were in that game and if Leipzig just can up it a little bit, then a 2-0 deficit, I think, could turn into a 2-0 win. But of course, then would still then need another goal. So it's it's not it's not going to be more straightforward of of missions for them simply because the first result is so bad. Okay,
1: Rafa. Just before you go, um, comparisons which get increasingly mentioned with Dortmund's slump in late period Klopp. There, uh, they're getting. They, is it fair to say they're getting more and more relevant to what's going on at Liverpool?
6: Well, yes and no. I mean, it's getting more relevant because the results don't seem to be getting any better and a lot of people couldn't quite understand I guess Klopp included why Dortmund had such a terrible first half of the season in 1415, the season he left I guess the real relevance would only become apparent if we'd be somehow in a situation where Klopp himself feels that he has to go which of course happened in that season I don't think we've reached that point yet I think the backing inside the club is a lot stronger than it was within Dortmund in 14-15. Liverpool are not in danger of relegation yet. I think (laughs) Dortmund were, at least for half the season. And, you know, bouncing back for Dortmund meant finishing in seventh. Bouncing back for Liverpool would would probably mean finishing in fourth or maybe winning the Champions League or at least having a good run. So I think there is still not quite the same level of, of crisis being reached. But of course the results have been bad and, and I think it's going to be very, very difficult for Liverpool to explain exactly why things have gone so wrong so quickly with allowing for all the issues that we know about. It still is hard to explain why they've been so bad recently.
1: Mm, but the Dortmund example doesn't give us any clues to that. and Equally... What uh, what enabled them to turn it around and is that in any way applicable to the situation at Liverpool?
6: This is where I'm a little bit worried because what turned it around for Dortmund having a bit of a break over Christmas having time to go back on the training ground and working on a lot of details that for one reason or the other just had stopped working. Once they got these details right they were once again the second best team by quite a distance in the league. And It was quite interesting because Liverpool themselves looked into that slump when they were thinking about Jurgen Klopp a little bit later and their analytics department figured out that even at their very worst, actually a lot of it could be explained by bad luck. In other words, even when they were the worst team in the Bundesliga results-wise, they were just on a rotten run when a lot of things went against them. But I feel that this ability to just kind of switch off or maybe take the team to Marbella for 10 days, all the sort of things that you would do in a normal season right now, they're not available, which I think makes this all a little bit more complicated than it might have to be in ordinary times.
1: All right, Rafa. Well, big game coming up then on Wednesday night for the embattled Liverpool manager. You'll be back in Tuesday's Totally Football show. Uh, previewing that a little bit more and also telling us all about that extraordinary De Classica comeback by Bayern. So I look forward to speaking to you then.
6: Me too, James. Bye.
0: Pep, what do you think are the risks of players taking part in fantasy football? I I, I think that... uh... Fantasy football. What is this uh, fantasy football? And Man City win the treble again with an incredible goal for Erling Haaland, who's just signed a 10-year contract with Man City. He said what sealed it was the long, flowing locks of manager Pep Guardiola. Look at him there on the sidelines, his hair cascading down over his shoulders. Oh. Uh, next question. That's one sort of fantasy football, Pep. Paddy power. Pa. 18+. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone.
5: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around.
1: Sunday night, Spurs are walloping Crystal Palace 4-1, continuing their recent uh, rampaging form. That's four straight wins for Mourinho's side. They've scored 12 goals in those, in those games, only conceded two. They are now sixth, two points off the top four. Now uh, Michael you didn't see this game too much so Adam and and Daniel can you can you can you tell Michael all about the spectacle that he missed
2: Yeah sure well um this was yet another um kind of chapter in the resurgence of Gareth Bale or at least nominally I mean in the grand scheme of things he may not, he clearly isn't the player he used to be but I do fear, though, that I mean he's gonna, he's going to comfortably hit double figures for Spurs this season. And then but you look back, and he scored his goals against the likes of Brighton, Lask, Stoke, Wickham, Wolfsburger, Burnley, and now Palace. But then, on the other hand, I think that's who Spurs play seventy percent of the time. So who cares? Um, but it, it, it's it, it's minutes. Under his belt because this that was what he clearly needed. There was he was gonna, he needed a run of games and then there was that was going to provide the answer to whether he was either washed up or there was something still there. And this, I think this is money in the bank for the kind of latter perspective. But the, the highlight for me was um, the third goal by Harry Kane, which was which was just so nice. I mean, we're so used to we're so used to kind of the, the classic Harry Kane goal, which is turning center of goal. 25 yards out and just larruping it into the kind of bottom left. But this was, this was Kane that's slightly more subtle, which was kind of letting the ball do the work as he as he hit it first time, receiving it from the right, curling it into the top left corner, which is always such a nice goal to see. And you know what they're trying to do. And the, and, and even by extension, the goalkeeper knows what's about to happen and can't do anything about it. So you add all those things up and you get a very, very nice goal. So um, any, any Spurs performance that contains a Kane goal like that is all right by me.
1: Right. So before this, Bale had opened the scoring, and then Christian Benteke had equalised for Palace to the delight of Roy Keane, who kind of opined for some time about how much he liked headed headed goals. He and Souness had a bit of a reminisce about that. And then and then Bale scored again, and then came this remarkable Kane goal. And I'm surprised, how you say that the goalkeeper knew what was happening because it caught me completely by surprise. The the speed at which Kane addressed that ball and and
2: yeah, it was remarkable for such a well, I mean, difficult I, shot. I can't speak to the uh, goalkeeper's eye line, but um, but yeah, no, it was classic technique. You know, you knew where Kane was going. It's just that the trajectory is always going to take the ball away from the uh, from the keeper. But um, I should, I, I feel like I should step in on the Benteke subject. Um, it was widely described as a bullet header. It was just a shameful description of what went on in front of everybody's eyes what's what? wrong with people what's why wrong was it with
1: why was it not what would it need to be to be a bullet header
2: <laughs> I I mean it, it was it was somewhere between a glancing header and a bullet header so we, it was it was on that spectrum but absolutely nowhere near enough I mean bullet headers need to be essentially coming straight back off your head right forcefully towards the goal and you're sort of using the the direction of the delivery of the cross thinking so maybe sort of Hullet's headed goal for Holland in the final of Euro 88 as my go-to example for this sort of thing but it
4: just wasn't a bullet header I just That's don't a understand Hullet why header people... not a
1: bullet header surely. Quite right
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anyway Sorry um, So
3: so proud of him Gareth... <laughs>
2: Rightly so Gareth... don't know why I didn't see it
1: yeah. <laughs> Gareth Bale with six goals and six now That's a lot and you say they're against teams that et and so on, but he could maybe add a, a more illustrious uh, opponent to that tally next weekend when they play Arsenal. Gareth Bale, stats say, and now has more goals in the league in a week for Spurs than he scored in 18 months for Real Madrid. Michael?
4: Yeah, I mean, I haven't caught up with this game yet, but I did see the uh, pre-match team sheet and noticed that Tottenham came incredibly close to naming 1 to 11 shirt numbers. They named 10 of the 11. Um, and then Lucas Moura was in instead of Eric Lamella had Eric Lamella played instead of Lucas it would have been the first time since 98-99 in Charlton Athletic that a team had fielded 1-11 to 11 shirt numbers from the start in a Premier League game so if you like that sort of thing there's your information
1: Wow OK Spurs against Arsenal next week and I think by, by now we have to assume that this kind of approach will continue from Tottenham Hotspur uh, Arsenal uh, meantime, Saturday, they were at Burnley and fans often talk about a club's DNA, uh, West Ham <laughs> fans, Liverpool. This was very much Arsenal's DNA, this this game.
3: Yeah, I I couldn't quite decide whether they were going to get bullied by Burnley on set pieces or were going to make a, a defensive ricket to cede control in a game they should have been leading by two or three. And, and they went with option B this time, it's a fair play to them for mixing it up.
1: Right. So they'd scored a, a, a rather lovely opener from uh, a yang, mm-hmm. although uh, Nick Pope may have felt that he, he should have dealt with it a bit better. But anyway, so they're, they're in the lead. And uh, well, uh, do you want to describe what happened to anyone who missed it?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's just it, Arsenal playing out from the back, which I should say, you know, you hear commentators say quite a lot, kind of, oh, they'll get themselves into trouble doing this and then kind of almost crowing when it happens. I mean... Arsenal are better at playing out from the back than they would be if they just launched it long and ceded possession every time they did it against Burnley's back four, who are more than happy to deal with that. So I think they did the right thing. They just kind of stuffed it up. And uh, yeah, Chris Wood got in the way of Passer and Passy. And there was a controversy, obviously, about penalties, et cetera. But uh, I don't think Arsenal really justified the win.
1: Oh, OK. So yeah, Shaka just basically... Smacked the ball straight at Chris Wood and it bounced off into the goal, which was remarkable. Yeah.
3: It's a good trick shot, yeah.
2: I like to think of it as a kind of acceptable waste product of this new of this new style of play because I, I think teams kind of budget for one or two of these a season, knowing full well that in the grand scheme of it, this style of play is going to work out. So, if anything, it's kind of we all take something from it. Um, teams, as I say, kind of budget for these kind of, you know errant situations and the rest of us just get to enjoy it once or twice a season right.
4: times times 20 so I think we all win from this I think it's worth pointing out as well that the first goal that Arsenal scored or the only goal Arsenal scored it did come from very brave passing in deep positions from Xhaka and in particular Partey um, playing through the lines and I mean Arsenal were trying to do that they were deliberately trying to prompt Burnley to press up high and then play past them and I thought by and large it worked quite well um, yeah, obviously, I agree with Adam. I think it's built into to the way Arteta wants to play. And mm. I think overall, since he took over, I think Arsenal have scored some fantastic goals playing out from the back. So, yeah, for me, it was a, another individual error from Xhaka. Yeah, it certainly seems to be built into the way he,
1: he wants to play. Um, <laughs> as per the penalties that Daniel wanted to gloss over, uh, so the one was a, an Eric Peters handball, which wasn't uh, given... And that's the one that Arsenal were upset about. And there was another one later on that was given and he was going to be sent off, but then VAR overturned it, which means that this stat is still true. No Burnley players have been sent off in a home Premier League game since 2009. Remarkable. That's 130 matches now, I think, now in, at Turf Moor. Burnley are now one win in nine Premier League games. And with the point, possibly there's some use to them as they continue to hover on the edge of the relegation scrap. As for Arsenal, I'm not sure what their intending to do with their league campaign at this point. They've gone with two wins in the last seven, eight games without a clean sheet. And yeah, this new look Spurs arriving next week. It's, yeah, interesting times. And Olympiacos coming up uh, on Thursday.
4: Yeah, I was really surprised to learn about the the clean sheet thing that you just said, because Arsenal have actually got a really good defensive record. I mean, they've conceded fourth fewest goals in the league, only behind Man City... Chelsea and Aston Villa. So there seem to be so many statistical quirks about this Premier League campaign. It's just been a, a very strange campaign. I think Arsenal are one of the strangest teams in it. Mm.
1: Alrighty. Do you see any sign, Michael, of them coalescing into something
4: less strange? Yeah, I mean, I said I he must be tearing his hair out because this was another game where I thought, by and large, Arsenal did the right things. I mean, they... They had one blocked on the line. They had one off the post. I mean, there's been quite a few games like this where they should have won it. And I think when they don't win, it has often been down to the the players rather than Arteta's uh, strategy. And if you like the underlying numbers and that kind of thing, there's been a major improvement since November, December, where things were looking really dodgy. So, yeah, I, I do see an improvement. I just think they're probably uh, maybe a couple of players away and and a bit more, you know, familiarity with the the system to uh to start challenging for the european places but i mean that said for them to be in 10th is is quite a underachievement isn't it and you wonder whether i mean they're out of the fa cup but you wonder whether europa league might rescue arteta's campaign the the same way the fa cup did last year
2: let's not forget the um europa conference league um which (laughs) i think i think is taking us back to what the true european places used to be like when i think back to the phrase european places it used to be kind of a nice little chunk of the league table where you could hope to finish now it's now it's down to kind of like one europa league place but it's, it's quite feasible that um a team like liverpool could find themselves in a qualifying for the Europa Conference League next season or in fact if Arsenal buck their ideas up they could find themselves there but I did see an incredible headline this week that suggested that Liverpool were in danger of qualifying for the Europa Conference League which <laughs> I have never seen that phrase used um, which says all that needs to be said about the attitude towards that new competition
1: By the way, listener if, if, if you were thinking when Michael said that Arteta tearing his hair out that he must need incredibly strong wrists uh, then, uh, then you're not the only one <laughs> Uh, Brighton, similarly on brand in terms of their DNA with their clash with Leicester in that they performed well and took the lead on Saturday but came away with nothing. Uh, A 2-1 victory for Leicester at the Amex featuring Adam Lallana's first goal for Brighton which gave them the early lead and then another lovely goal from Ian Acho and then that business with the goalkeeper Roberto Sanchez and Daniel Amati, Amati Mm. Blue.
3: Oh yeah, just a word on on Acho, who I'm kind of inclined to believe just isn't either isn't doesn't fit Leicester or probably just isn't quite good enough for what they want to achieve. But he's got them four points in the last week or so. And Jamie Vardy on the on the quiet has only scored once in his last fourteen games for Leicester, which means they really needed Ianache. And and credit to Rodgers, who's kind of gone to a two up front, which I guess was just to try and push Iheanacho up there and give Vardy a bit more room and kind of take a defender away from Vardy. But actually, it's led to Inacho scoring a few goals rather than Vardy, which is a kind of happy, you know, a happy end result for Leicester because, yeah, with the injuries they've got, every win's golden at the moment.
2: Inacho's goal was a really, really nice finish. Again, again, a finish you don't really see that often, like that level of calmness and timing. He kind, kind of sort of half-fakes the goalkeeper. And then produced a finish that nobody was expecting. I just really, really like that finish. And a little note on on Vardy as well. We're so used to him kind of streaming over the top for through balls, but it's got to the point now where when you watch him sprint, you're waiting for him to pull up. It looks really painful. Like he, and we know he's he's basically either carrying an injury or he's kind of not long after a hernia operation. And I just, I start to think we are seeing the kind of last dregs of, of Jamie Vardy. Because the one thing about him is that he's never going to become any other type of player. You're not going to see him drop into the kind of centre midfield spraying passes around. So that's it. That's all the Vardy we're ever going to get.
1: Crikey. That's a bit of a a thought. Uh, no. On a more kind of heartwarming <laughs> note, uh, nice to see uh, Marti returning after two years out injured and getting the winner in this game. A last gasp winner, I think we can call it that. Yeah, Adam, there's no...
3: 88 minutes, it's close to the edge. Would you say? Specialists in the field
2: do recommend 88 onwards. No, no, oh. sorry, 89 onwards. Okay. So, mm. so you're into the last minute of regular time and then injury time notwithstanding. It's, the real issue with last gasp is when people start using it for sort of the fifth goal in like a 5-0 win. So, right. you know, last gasp, fifth goal, which is clearly against the very definition of it. It's not desperate. That's cake icing.
1: It has to change fundamentally change the outcome of the game.
2: Not necessarily. I mean, it, it probably would do because it's either an equaliser or
4: a winner. But right, it's, yeah. it's the point, by definition, it's, it's a desperate act. It was done yeah. in desperate
2: ah, times. Absolutely.
4: I thought the winner was interesting because um, when I was on this podcast a few weeks ago after the Brighton-Burnley game, I said that Burnley were just peppering Robert Sanchez with crosses as if Dyche had thought, well, here's a Spanish guy. He won't be able to cope with crosses. <laughs> And I wonder whether he watched this and kind of grinned to himself. And then I researched, Sanjay, I say research, I looked him up on Wikipedia and found that he'd, he's actually been in England since the age of 15. Hmm. Um, and so there's a potential if he, I mean, this mistake aside, I think he's been very good. So there's a potential he'll be, one, he'll be like the new Manuel Almunia and we'll be saying, get Sanchez on the plane to the Euros or oh, you know, the, the World although, Cup. Although, because... as Adam
1: has pointed out, I think all England's games are being played in, in England. Anyway, well, that,
4: so. that, that, that might be true. <laughs> maybe, maybe Qatar's is, is time to shine. Right, but he right. hasn't played for Spain. He's never played for any of the youth teams. Okay. He's now 23. So who knows what might happen with that?
1: But maybe the same uh, situation could apply to Sidney Tavares. Did you enjoy his? Was this his debut? He looked really exciting, though. No?
3: First Don't start, think think yeah, to, yeah, first start.
1: Hmm. Okay. Uh, cousin of uh, Nanny, the uh, Man United winger. Anyway, first start of his senior career. I th- I thought he looked quite lively. There you go. How much trouble are Brighton in?
3: The good news is is they did they didn't have loads and loads of shots without scoring. They the the bad news is they had fewer shots, um, and still contrived to miss a few of them. I I'm I'm worried about them. I, I tweeted earlier because I, I was just looking at the odds and I couldn't quite believe that there were such outsiders for relegation. Even after Fulham won, Brighton is still like 6-1 to one to go down and Newcastle are evens, which given that I know Newcastle are, are, have a, you know a number of problems and Brighton's underlying numbers are pretty good, but we've played 27 games and they are still behind Newcastle in the table. So that kind of constant, getting so close and missing and missing out in different ways psychologically must start to affect you at some point so that the next time you get a chance you're less likely to take it than than the last one you had and I I, I, they have Newcastle at home it should we should say in a week's time or 10 days time which probably helps.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
5: This episode is supported by FX's
0: Welcome to Wrexham.
5: On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson.
1: Also in action this weekend were Southampton away at Bramwell Lane where they brought to an end that really dismal run of form that they have been on with a 2-0 victory over Sheffield United. James Ward-Prowse with the early penalty. And then, Adam, can I say Che Adams got in on the act?
2: No, you may not. No, why not? You he may scored. not. Why, why, why <laughs> not? I mean interesting elementary logic there but um, I getting in the act is a very specialist thing getting in the act is um, is essentially a very polite way of saying how must you be even this guy scored um, so it's it's essentially either the fourth or fifth goal in a route scored preferably by a player who wouldn't normally be seen on the score sheet so but all it's those things
1: so doesn't two goals count as like
2: you know no, four or five no, it's, not it's not relative it's not relative to a team's ability it can't be shifted like that um, one okay. thing i did i did like about this game is it, it it marks the real kind of um the point at which chris wilder had has, has essentially thrown in the towel but in a really nice way they he gave an interview before the game where um, it was suggested that Sheffield United might be able to kind of lay into Southampton what and he said, uh,
5: <laughs> What sort of interview is this? Have you not seen the league table? <laughs> <laughs> We're not exactly ripping it up, Craig, eh?
7: Uh, I just, I'm
2: incredibly, re- I mean, I hate to use the word refreshing, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's an incredibly refreshing way for a, for a manager to own up to his own team's failings by making a massive joke about it before the game. Um, and then afterwards he was in a kind of a similar mood. Why do you hate the word Refreshing. Um, because we seem to roll it out every season uh. for a manager who, who, who says something in a slightly unique way. And, mm. uh, I'm ashamed of myself for saying it. Okay.
3: On Wilder, I don't know if this is why he's in kind of, again, in kind of d happy mode, but, um, there are reports that there's this kind of breakdown of relationship between owners and, and him in so much as they'd quite like a director of football, uh, and point to the fact they spent 80 million pounds on five players in the last year and a half that have not done particularly well. Uh, and he would like full control, which, uh, I, I mean, I guess is a kind of natural end if they go down and that he'll, everyone will still be grateful, but accept that maybe someone else might do a decent job, bring them back up because it's a heck of a job to turn around the mood at that club. The same guy, I think over the course of a summer.
1: Uh, meanwhile, Southampton uh, marking what was Ralph Hasenhuttle's 100th game in charge with this victory so that's nice uh, a couple of golders draws but we don't need to talk about those Michael <laughs> so Aston Villa Wolves 0-0 no one could break the deadlock that's fair isn't it Adam yeah. agreed and the West Brom Newcastle one a great stat this from Daniel Story from a Newcastle point of view Jeff Hendrick is the Magpies top league goalscorer in the starting 11 in this game He's only had one shot on target since the opening weekend. <laughs> that's, how is, how is he the...
3: So he scored on the opening weekend and then right. scored with his only other shot on target against Leeds. So
1: he, with two goals, was the highest scoring player in that starting eleven.
3: Yeah, that's right. right. Uh, and if I can be so bold to say it, the match very much kind of moved on from that statistic and rode with it because it was pretty desperate for... Uh, Bruce kind of described it afterwards. He sort of said, "Oh, this is a good point," which seemed, to, at the time, seemed a really strange thing to say with Fulham about to kick off ten minutes later, because it immediately was proven not a particularly good point because they were paying their easiest away game remaining this season, and and Fulham won at Liverpool. So yeah, I, he also kind of said with a resigned eh, uh, kind of. We've done okay this season, as if he's just sort of hoping that no one would challenge him on it, which I really liked. Mm. And th- and no one really did in their defence. They just sort of went, yeah, let's get, let's move on.
1: Well, still to come from this Premier League round, there are two games on Monday, Michael. You got big issues with the scheduling of these, yes?
4: I wouldn't say big issues, just surprised. I mean, usually the Monday six pm game is one you can kind of write off because it usually involves. West Brom or Burnley, but I think Chelsea and Everton were like fourth versus fifth coming into the weekend. Right, yeah, it's, it's um, Chelsea against Everton, nah. six,
1: six o'clock. It might have kicked off, listen, I don't know when what time it is for you right now, but uh, yeah, that's six o'clock on Monday. Uh, Thursday, of course, after our most recent uh, Totally Show, uh, Chelsea were long ball winners over Liverpool. Uh, Thomas Tuchel continuing his excellent run. Of results, he's unbeaten in ten games as Chelsea manager, only two goals conceded, and that big question, yeah, but who's he beaten, has now been rather resoundingly answered. Uh, two of last year's Champions League last sixteen, in fact, Atletico Madrid and uh, and Liverpool uh, most recently, so all looking good. Thumbs up all round for Thomas.
3: Yeah, I think there's still a question about the attacking side of it, in that feels like a, a formation designed to make Chelsea really disciplined and hard to break down, which is exactly what they needed to be. But I think he would probably have liked more, kind of better in that transition in the passing through midfield. It sometimes feels like it gets a little bit clogged or a little bit laboured there, unless they have that special move where Mount kind of hangs out on the right and him and hudson Adoy double up on a left back. That works really well. But that kind of feels like their only or their best passage of attacking play but yeah obviously it's going well
1: mm. Everton uh, by the way haven't won at Stamford Bridge for over 26 years crikey although they have won the last three meetings with Chelsea good to some part. interesting uh, West Ham Leeds will be slightly later on Monday 8 o'clock that one kicks off uh, I believe that this is quite a cherished fixture amongst well fans of red cards principally West Ham once ended this fixture with eight men back in May 1999 <laughs> Uh, they'd lost five one uh, at Upton Park uh, against Leeds. Uh, the three players sent off for the hammers were Steve Lomas, Shaka Hislop, and Ian Wright, who actually was the first to go after only thirteen minutes. And <laughs> the reason that I mentioned this is quite a cherished memory was that this is the time when he basically went into uh, the referee's dressing room, uh, Rob Harris was the official, and took his clothes and threw them in the bath. Wow, nice
2: nice yeah it, it, so, it does feel like a very red cardy game. Like in any era, yeah. I mean, you basically got two sort of mildly hysterical football clubs, um, with similar fan bases. And uh, but crucially, it's a game that in any decade of the Premier League's existence, I would be quite up for watching, mm. let alone at 8 p.m. on a Monday,
1: 8 o'clock. But that might clash with the big, um, the big, when's the big interview on a Monday? The Megan, no idea. really? All right, <laughs> no idea. Okay. Uh, I th-
3: I, my theory is that Adam thinks it's Red Cardi because it's West Ham Leeds screams Lee Bowyer to me. Yes, uh, that's exactly I, what I had in mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Well, whatever you choose to watch, I hope you enjoy it on Monday night. Still to come in this edition of the Totally Football Show. Uh, well, all sorts of stuff. Uh, we'll mention Rangers, that's for sure. Uh, but first of all, something pretty special because we're about to hear for the last time on this show Certainly is the man from Paddy Power, from Lee Price. Over to you, old friend.
7: Hello, listener, for the final time. Yep, this is my last Paddy Power segment. Thank you for listening, through the dad jokes, the bad jokes, the singing, and indeed the odds. There'll be none of those things today, but plenty of the usual self-indulgence you'll be glad to hear. Personally, I have to say, it's been a genuine thrill to be associated with this show, I've listened for many years. I remember watching the recording of one episode live as a wide-eyed work experience kid at a certain newspaper, probably about a decade ago, depressingly. But seeing producer Ben and AC Jimbo in full flow was magic. I'll continue to be a listener, and maybe I won't have to skip the sponsor segment anymore now that I got rid of that annoying guy. And it might even be safe to go back to my Twitter mentions. Maybe. Your job now is to stand by the new manager of this segment. I'll leave you with the words of Britain's finest poets. Fever forever. I'll be waiting. Everlasting. Like the sun. Hasta mañana.
1: Happy trails, Lee. You can find odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Hey, listen, while you're here, why not sign up for a subscription with The Athletic, uh, which will... Uh, Provide you with unrivalled coverage on what I think I can call the business end of the season. Adam, have we started? Are we at the business end yet, or not?
2: I. uh, Some people are quite lenient with this and say it's Christmas onwards. Um, What? That's probably pushing it. Um, My theory is that it should be Easter, uh, for the simple reason that nobody knows where Easter actually is. is, So it's it's fine. (laughs) Whenever
1: the business end comes around, you'll get unrivalled coverage of it on or at the Athletic. All the articles, all the podcasts, ad free. And Q&As with writers and the odd quiz as well. All of that for the extraordinarily low price of just £4 a month. You can find this deal at theathletic.com slash totally. Rangers are champions, everybody. There was a big party. Stevie G. Now, um, was this a reference to This Does Not Slip?
3: Cause he, Surely it, not.
1: Do you No? Cause it, so basically in the party in the, the dressing room afterwards... They kind of prepare a kind of slightly kind of moistened bit of floor, and he does a he does a, a slide across the dressing room floor in his in his work clothes. Um,
3: everything that he said, I'll be um, fair enough if it is, but everything he said afterwards yeah. has made that him sound a genuine shell of a man talking about that incident. So, oh. I mean, maybe this was his kind of complete absolution of Probably it by not.
2: Probably recreating not. it, but. I would be surprised. I think dressing room sliding is very much the uh, en vogue way of celebrating big wins. Is it?
1: Okay. All right. Yes.
2: Usually kit men, but, you know, fair
1: enough. Well, it was nice that he he mucked in, and, you know, there was much rejoicing. There's a special Beyond the Headline podcast all about Rangers Triumph, and that's due out, I think, this week. Look out for that one, telling the story of how they took the title back from Celtic. Hopefully soundtrack with... uh, I don't know, in the air tonight, maybe, or in too deep, something like that. Rangers Triumph will also get a mention in the Totally Scottish Football Show, which is out this Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday is the day to look out for the Offside Rule WSL edition as well. A Totally Football League Show, hope you're keeping up with this, is out on Monday. Ooh, uh, Swansea, winners in midweek with a 96-minute penalty from Andre Ayew. Guess what happened this Saturday? They won with a ninety-seventh minute penalty from Andre Ayew. That is last gasp, isn't it? That is that is the lastest of gaspists. Right. Excellent. What did what did Forrest do this weekend? Daniel? Don't worry about that. Don't okay. Don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. And on Tuesday. You can catch up with Rafa and the boys uh, in the Totally Football Show European Edition. Crikey, there's a lot of things we're going to be talking about there. Obviously, we're looking forward to the Europa League games on Thursday in the midweek uh, Champions League uh, second legs. We'll also be discussing the Clasica and the election. They finally had the election at uh, Barcelona and loads of other stuff too. So make sure you join us for that. There's a new Galazzo out as well, by the way featuring Raphael Honigstein, uh, all about the Tre Tedeschi, the three Germans at Inter, Mateus Bremer and Klinsmann. So uh, do hope you enjoy that. And, and, and next week we'll bring a fresh Galazzo, which is all about Ronaldo. No, not that one. That one. Good. Excellent. Michael, what are you going to be up to this week?
4: uh staying in my house and watching football i suppose (laughs) i I, I, I don't really i don't really think about plans for the upcoming weekend no
1: that's the beauty of it (laughs) come may you'll have to think about plans again but for now the only thing you have to plan is which game you're most excited about watching which what what are you going to watch give us one game
4: um i mean if if we're including monday night i think chelsea everton could be quite fun
1: Mm. so i'll go for that tuesday night what are you going to watch
4: daniel
3: uh Dortmund, Sevilla on Tuesday I'd have thought and yeah Liverpool on Wednesday Liverpool is obviously really interesting because if they can see the first goal um that becomes a real thing doesn't it
2: doesn't it though yeah and Adam what's ringed in red for you I will be choosing some new paving stones for my back garden um, seriously Yes, I'm. Uh, it looks like Indian sandstone, but we're not entirely decided. Um, uh, oh. Equally undecided about my Wednesday night choice. I'm tempted by Liverpool Leipzig just to see if there would be any more capitulation, but I still also want to see the final humiliation that is PSG Barcelona. Yes. So, oh, I mean, that.
1: Mm, I can, I can understand that. Um, if you're in doubt, listener yourself, then listen to Tuesday's Totally Football Show European Edition, when we'll be breaking down those fixtures and you can take an informed view for your uh, evening's viewing pleasure. That, though, brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. So do hope you have a splendid rest of your day. And many thanks to Daniel and Adam and Michael for being with us and Charlie for staying up through the night and putting it all together and you, listener, for putting up
5: with us all the way through. We'll be back soon. From all of us here in the meantime, though, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.